Hey, it's me, Tim Ranzetta, co-founder of NextGen Personal Finance. Thank you for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. Today on the show, it's a repeat guest. His name, Mark Salisbury. He knows more about college pricing. His organ, his company, Tuition Fit, is really geared to make it more transparent. So folks have a better idea of how much college is actually going to cost. So we are talking in February. So over the next several months, guess what? Financial aid award letters are going to be coming through. So Mark shares some very sage advice on five things to look for in a financial aid award letter because unfortunately they're not standardized and can be very challenging to read. You're also going to learn about Mark's background and why he has such in-depth knowledge of how college pricing works. So without further ado, Mark Salisbury. All right. Welcome, Mark. Hey, good to see you again. All Looks right. like we can practically be brothers here. It's a little frightening. All right. Let's get started, Mark, by uh, maybe giving folks a little bit of background on yourself, because I think that's really informative in terms of how you understand this paying for college game. Sure. Um, first things first, the whole thing's a marketplace. It's a marketplace. It's not an altruistic, yeah, it used to be that education was a public good, blah, blah, blah. It's now a marketplace. And colleges might be nonprofits, most of them, but they're businesses and run just like all kinds of businesses. Some are run really well, some are run really poorly and everything in between. But the bottom line is still, the colleges sell educational stuff and ultimately a degree. And they're trying to get consumers to buy their product and pay as much as they possibly can for it. Consumers, not so interested in that. Much more interested in getting something for what they paid, getting value, getting the best bang for their buck. And supposedly the two of them in a marketplace that is normal would hold each other in tension. And then prices would be sort of where they best sit and you'd have a really efficient marketplace. That's not how higher ed works at all. It is a really dysfunctional marketplace because the consumers every year are bright-eyed, bushy-tailed newbies, don't know what they don't know, except for what they think they remember from 20 years ago when they went to college, right? Or 30 or 40 years ago. Colleges spend six to seven figures a year on consultants and enrollment management software and financial aid modeling with the goal of what's the highest possible price I can get that individual or that family to pay to come to my school. And so you have this massive, what they call information asymmetry. And it plays out every year. There's all kinds of complexities in the world of financial aid and everything else. But most of what the financial aid thing has become is some way for the colleges to essentially justify the price they're going to ask the family to pay without actually having to own the fact that, no, I just want you to pay a lot. So I'll blame it on uh, the FAFSA formula for the expected family contribution or the CSS profile that we can talk about a little bit later, the nifty little thing that that is. Um, that justifies 
yeah, we can ask you to pay a lot more because the profile says or the FAFSA says we can. And families think they're supposedly sort of stuck with it. This whole thing is at its core a marketplace, but there's all kinds of weird functionality and idiosyncrasies and sort of artifacts that get manipulated by the sellers on a group of rookies every year. And it's created the monster that we've got now in terms of student debt. It's created now, you know, there's 1.6 million fewer students in higher ed than there were 10 years ago. And you got more and more folks that are saying, is it worth it? No, I don't see the value. And they might actually think it's actually a good thing to get educated. They just can't see their way into American higher education because of all of this stuff at the front that makes it so impossible to figure out what's my price going to be. Yeah. And then I think there's just the one point, I don't know what the number is now, 1.8 trillion um, in student debt, which I think has made people very, very weary. Um, but your perspective comes, you were, you were under the, you were in the tent, right? Like you worked in higher ed. Talk about how that experience, I mean, it obviously gives you tremendous insights in terms of how this marketplace work works or doesn't work. Yeah. Well, I spent 25 years working in colleges and universities. The first half of my career was in athletics and then in admissions. And as a function of both of those things, you know everything there is to know about financial aid. Then I spent four years essentially going back to school. At the end of my coaching career, um, I thought, you know what, some, some, there's got to be a better way to explain this weird monster that I've been living in for the past decade. So I went back and did a PhD studying how college students learn how higher education institutions work, and then went back to work in a different part of a college uh, where I was the nerdiest job title ever, director of institutional research and assessment, right? Don't get education people mad at you already. Add and assessment on the end of it just to make sure they really hate you right out of the gate. And I spent eight years doing that, and especially that job is Every single data point that any organization wants to know about a college and university, I got to go find it, collect it, organize it, report it, as well as analyze what it means and how it affects what we do. And if it helps us, hurts us. And then, oh, by the way, use data to figure out how you can get better. And so eyeball deep in all this stuff for essentially, you know, now 25 years. And that sort of pushed me to what we're going to talk about a little bit now is I know the system backwards and forwards. I helped make the sausage. <laughs> um, I was in the room when meetings are being had on how do we shape the language in the financial aid letter so it doesn't really say how bad it really is. Right. So I've seen all that stuff play out. And I don't think tuition fit is a mea culpa. But some people might perceive it to be. Um, but it certainly helps to know what's really going on behind the curtain to then be able to try to help people understand it better. I did not know you were such a data guy and that you were inside that institutional 
collecting data at the institutional level because that's the data that goes into the ratings, correct? So that's oh, another, yeah. Oh, yeah. a pretty controversial area recently, right? With uh, maybe a little bit of fudging of the numbers, huh? <laughs> fudging. Um, Trying to make like a four-layer four cake with, a, it's not just fudging. Um, so some folks might, I'm sure nobody's actually read this, but in, well, then in 2018, I published a column in Inside Higher Ed. In 2018, I did, where I said explicitly that every institution ought to lie in the rankings, ought to lie in a grandiose way, like go big, report your endowment in Bitcoin, right? Like just go big, right? Because the whole system of the rankings is built on air. So if the institutions just lie big, the rankings lose all meaning and then they would just fall apart. A couple of years later, Malcolm Gladwell made the same argument and people read his a lot more than they read mine. And I'm not bitter. Malcolm, I'm just, I'm reaching out. I'm not bitter. Call me. So yes, I know rankings quite well um, and had plenty of arguments with college presidents about you want to get those out of here? Here's the way to do it. Oh, yeah. So most entrepreneurial journeys start with trying to fix a problem. So yeah. talk a little bit about when you were getting tuition fit started, what, what problem were you trying to solve? Well, for years and years, you spend any time in higher education and you see how frustrated the public is with, just tell me what my price is going to be. Like, it's not a big ask, right? And, you know, you see more and more people comparing it to the sort of old used car buying experience because it has gotten that way. And I had seen that over years and years and years and seen how frustrated the public was. And knowing all of the data that's out there, knowing that colleges don't report any of those individual prices, they just report their sticker price that nobody pays. And then the average net price of all of those different prices averaged together and seeing how over time both of those numbers became equally useless right because if your sticker price is 75,000 and everybody's paying something different from 0 to 75 then that average of 37 or 40 or 42 at a given school that's not helpful right? Like, okay, so I might be at 60, I might be at 20. That average doesn't help me at 42, right? So the numbers that were colleges were reporting, so what for the individual consumer? But the thing that really flipped my switch on trying to do something was, and I should just own it, I kind of think we need higher education in this country for the, a democracy to work. I'm just going to say that out loud. I kind of think that's important. Call me crazy. And all of these colleges that have substantial discounts, which is now most of them, a lot of those colleges are these small colleges, liberal arts colleges throughout the Midwest, um, East Coast, up in the Northeast, all hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these small colleges. And then the only thing that still pays a decent salary in the small town they're in, and 
any kind of progressive thought, I don't mean progressive in a political sense, I just mean entrepreneurial thinking, but culturally progressive as well. Like any if anything like that that's going on in that small town is a function of that institution being there, that small college. And those small colleges offer the exact prices that most students are actually looking for to be able to afford to go to college. They can't find each other because the student who needs that $20,000 price instead of the 75 only sees the 75 when they look it up. And so they go, well, yeah, no, forget it. That's not going to work. And then even if they get a conversation with that school and that school says, no, 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 we got tons of scholarships. Really, really, we love you. That student's going to be like, yeah, I've heard that scam before. So they're not going to look anymore. And that school now has a hard time keeping the lights on when they're offering the exact price that that student's looking for. And that small town and our sort of fabric in the Midwest needs that college to survive. So all of this stuff just really got me to like, somebody's got to fix this thing. And I'm not anointed by anybody in particular, but there's an awful lot of money being made off of the dysfunctionality of this marketplace. And they're be, they're making it off of the consumer, right? The consumer's all afraid that they're going to get stuck with a price they can't possibly handle and then end up in debt. So there's a bunch of folks that are offering services that you pay thousands of dollars to do that, to, to get into some school. And then there's six, seven figures a year being spent by the colleges on enrollment marketing. And those organizations that they pay benefit from the same system. So it's not a teach a man to fish. It's just hand them fish sticks, right? Like it's, it's, it's not helping the system. And so I just kind of decided, all right, let's just try something crazy. All those prices are sitting out there in the award letters that students get every year. I know how to read them. I know how to make sense of what they are actually saying. And I know how college pricing models work. So if I've got the award letter and I know just a little bit about the family finances of the student and a little bit about the academic profile of the student, I know that college gives that price to that kind of student and I can zoom it out and get a couple thousand offers. And now you can sort of do a Kelly Blue Book of college pricing. So that was the goal. And, you know, pandemic showed up in the middle of that, which was a little bit tough, but uh, we've managed to sort of crack it open where people can use tuition fit and it's primarily a free tool for the public. You share data, see data, just like Glassdoor. And now people can see all of the prices that are out there and people are ending up saving money on college. And they're ending up more powerful consumers and they're ending up having a lot of leverage to negotiate and get a better price. And they had no idea until they saw the comparisons. That was the goal. So there are thousands of colleges in the U.S. Um, you're a small business. How do you and obviously so the way you've described it, I go onto your website if I want to get information on different schools i've got to share a couple of my award letters and probably some you mentioned some other you know information too and then that gives me access to right. to the data yep it's kind of a chicken or the how did you solve the chicken or the egg problem which is i don't want to go to your site until i can find thousands of schools and yet you need 
people to to see the you know see the field so to speak yeah that's a it's a great question and it was a really tough problem to solve and and to the degree i think i've solved it is probably not entirely solved right because it's still there's a the one of the worst parts about the college admissions process is people don't come in with a blank slate i wish they did they come in actually misinformed on how this process works folks start the college process generally thinking all right i'll go and look at a bunch of colleges and then i'll decide which ones i apply to then i'll figure out how to pay for it and that is exactly how i would design it if i was a college because that ensures that I'm not competing against everybody for a given student. I'm just competing with a few of them. So if I can get the students to just sort of swoon over my campus and swoon over my stuff and lots of fancy pictures and nice brochures and an awesome campus tour, I can get them in my funnel all the way down. And then at the end say, oh, by the way, yeah, it's going to cost kind of a more than you were thinking. But there's these loans that you can take out to sort of fill the gap play this out right like we just we watched it in um sadly in real time over the past decade right so to get to your chicken and the egg problem or question which was a real challenge and problem was first of all families had to start to learn that you can negotiate because people didn't think that they could they didn't realize that the number of students going to college every year was dropping from about 2010 2012 on and they didn't realize that colleges have sort of built their business model much more like a big box store where it's volume, volume, volume. You just got to get more students every year. So if you got to get more students and there's less of them coming, the squeeze is on. And so now you've got more and more schools that aren't getting enough kids. The college revenue model is that you don't make any money on freshmen. You make it off of sophomores, juniors, and seniors. Because what you do is you give them a dollar amount in aid and lure them in with a great big dollar amount of aid while you've set the sticker price ridiculously high anyway. So that it's kind of a, like a distraction moment, right? Squirrel, here's how much money you got, right? And instead of this is how much you're gonna have to pay. But then because you give them money on a dollar amount and then you increase tuition by a percentage, your revenue shows up in year two, three, and four, right? So I just got to get the students in. I don't really care what it costs me to get them the first year. If I have to take a bath on a couple of students or a whole bunch of them, and then I keep them, I make my money later. So that against the demographic changes meant that all of a sudden there's lots of room to negotiate. So we started to teach people, you can negotiate. And then it didn't hurt us that the economy went kind of belly up. And especially in the pandemic, people all of a sudden really focused on cost. So then colleges even opened up even further to being willing to negotiate. And that set in motion that are if you're going to negotiate, well, how do you know what to ask for? Ah, you need to know what other people have been asked to pay. Yeah. And once you know that, you're kind of pissed <laughs> and you got leverage, right? And so that started to open up the, 
the sort of getting people to share data in order to see data. And once that got into motion, then the folks whose job it is to sort of help people through the college planning process, high school counselors, folks in community organizations, they realized that they could use that same data that was coming in from seniors to help the junior class build a college list that fit their price range. Yeah, start and with when that. they saw that, then it really started to catch on. So two observations I've had. Um, one is, and you can probably give me updated numbers because my data is a little old. What's the average discount for off of tuition for private schools? Uh, for private schools, it's close to 60% off average. Okay, okay so you, you all heard that. So I have siblings and I'm kind of the go-to when it comes to like, hey, this financial aid award letter came through. Just the fact let's say tuition at the school, and this is probably on the lower end for a private school is $30,000. And you get a notice from the school saying they're giving you a $16,000 scholarship or more, an $18,000 scholarship. You think that's pretty awesome because you don't know that that's the average discount. It's actually not a scholarship. It's a discount, but Totally. That, that idea of getting something from schools. So they set the tuition rate really high, but the number of conversations I've had with my siblings that they really want us like, look, they're discounting 40, 50, 60%. Like my child's special because they're getting all this money. It wouldn't go over so well if it was like uh, schools on sale or we use the word discount. Um, we'll right. call it merit scholarship. That's what we'll call it. Right. Right. And it comes out of this historical thing of like, you know, colleges decided they were going to set their sticker prices real high and then do all of this stuff, get people in their funnel. And then the ones they really want, oh, we just love you. You're so special. You're incredible. Here's the scholarship. Once they started to do that, they, they couldn't ever really get off of that, that train, right? And that, that um, hamster wheel started to create this thing where now everybody's got to get a scholarship. And it wasn't until the 90s that schools started to even track this thing called discount rate. And in the 90s, about midway through the 90s, they're paying attention to it. And they're like, wow, the average discount is 25% across all colleges and universities. That's crazy. That's terrible. Now it's 55, 60. And it, schools will actually have to report the discount rate for the incoming freshmen and the discount rate for the returning students. And you can see how that discount rate gets shorter, gets smaller, as I mean, this whole justifies the 7% tuition increase, right? The sticker price jump up. The actual price the freshmen pay each year doesn't really move that much. But the benefit of that giant tuition increase on the sticker price shows up in the amount of money that the families are having to pay in the second, third, and fourth year. And it's just so this- Their incentive, what you're telling me is their incentive is to continue to raise tuition rates because that- is the revenue that's coming through second, third, fourth year. Yeah. Because as they, Absolutely. If they if they keep fixed, if they keep the financial aid fixed, then that's interesting. Wow. And um, the focus is always, you know, yes, the sticker price went up. Response, nobody pays the sticker price. We give millions of dollars in scholarship money every year. Oh, okay. But the folks that sort of take it on the chin, they don't really talk about that. How do we encourage, because I think the other thing I've noticed from my siblings is 
they, there's almost like a sense that it's dangerous to negotiate. Like, can they pull my, can they pull our acceptance? Like, <laughs> this seems a little bit rude, right? Like they're welcoming us to this party and then we're saying, no, we don't want to pay a hundred dollars for this party. We want to pay 90. Like, right. Find it that is that widespread that people have this feeling that that is an old school but very pervasive belief. Well, I'm old, Mark. I mean, uh, you're old. Look at me. Oh wait, <laughs> we look the same. Um, the, it is something that comes from decades of like one. This perception that the college is up on the hill, and it's almost got you can still sort of smell the monastic DNA, right from centuries ago right so there's this deference right to higher education and to phd individuals that wear robes and stuff right so all of that is sort of historic and long-standing then you get into this notion of you know really got to get into a school it's really important to get into a school like a get into a big name school like da 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 right so you, so right away the, or over that period of time, the public sort of puts themselves in this position of powerlessness. And, oh, thank you for letting me into your school. Now you're, oh, I don't And underneath all of that is this belief that somehow the quality of the education at a brand name place is way better than the quality of the education at a less known place. 60 years of research blows that notion up. Or the notion that if you go to a brand name place, your salaries are going to be better because you're in the club now, right? And everybody else is part of the club, right? And Gallup's research on that blows that up too. But it's in the college's best interest for the public to think that, yeah. right? Like this is how you sell. Like the seller wants you to make an emotional decision. The consumer wants to make a rational decision, right? And it's the back and forth. And if the seller has all the cards and all the information, it makes it really hard to combat all of this. So let's talk about information because my sense is, I mean, number one, you're providing a great service to make college pricing a more transparent, but there's also the college scorecard. And I guess I've been impressed over the years as they've continued to add out the, or add to the data elements that are available. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of what information is it? So you can get closer to, right? Like when college, when the numbers often are six figures, suddenly it becomes less about, well, it'll be a good four years for personal maturation to, am I getting a return on this investment? Right. Um, and what are you paying for? You paying for four years of fun or are you paying for the 40 years after, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it just seems to me like there actually is if people know where to look, there's actually better and better data about if I study commerce at the University of Virginia, here's what I could make, here's what the average is after one year and after 10 years. Like you're starting to get some of that salary tied to majors information, which makes it easier to kind of say, hey, you know, is this investment, granted it's averages, so you always have to take that into account. The major you start with may not be the major you finish with, so maybe you look at several. But I've always felt like we're getting closer to that place where there is better information, at least on outcomes. Well, for compared to, you know, I, I did my PhD 15 some years ago at this point. And when I was just starting in the 
2000 aughts, right? Um, the quality of the data that's available then to now is light years away, right? Like it's a totally different thing. Um, and the scorecard is a good example of it, even though there's some interesting things where you can, College Navigator is the original version of what people could use to look at the data that's available. And then the scorecard became the sort of user-friendly version of it. And there's some data that's in Navigator that's not posted in the scorecard that would be really helpful, right? Some of it is about retention rates across different socioeconomic groups and different uh, race and ethnicity groups, right? Um, but still, by and large, the, the, your point still stands. The quality of the data out there is so much, the, the availability of good data on a lot of these things is, is much better. Graduation rates, first to second year retention rates. But I don't know how many people remember the Spellings Commission and that conversation, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. But one of the things that was really interesting in that conversation was they were starting to say, well, look, if we're really going to track student outcomes, one of the things we got to do is have student level data. We got to know that this student did these things and then graduated and went on because then we can really start to look at outcomes across different student types, right? You got to have student level data. If you don't have that, you're, you're kind of using sort of out of focus lenses. That led to the question about issues of privacy and reasonable things. So at some point in there, folks in the federal government said, you know what, we're absolutely not going to collect student level data. And that's off the table. That made it impossible to get at actual prices. So we never got to have that data available. And colleges were fine with that because they knew that the range of prices that they were charging were hard to justify across student types. And that sort of put us in this place where the one data point related to ROI that really matters here, the I, <laughs> you can't actually get. And that translates into what you were just talking about. There's some really interesting ROI calculators out there and some really interesting stuff that people have done. Um, a guy named Preston Cooper did some really interesting stuff um, at something, something opportunity. I cannot remember. I never can remember the name. It's sort of a lesser known think tank. Um, but he did some really interesting analysis on this stuff. The problem is that the data you're working with depends on uh, the data that comes from people who borrowed federal loans. So if you don't have the data for people who borrow, didn't because you didn't borrow a federal loan, then you don't know what you don't know, right? So the outcome data ends up getting skewed that way, especially for schools that meet all need, because you wouldn't see as many federal loans being, being taken, right? The other thing that's a challenge is at those schools, you could have a range of $40,000 range in actual price. And if you're interested in going to be a teacher, or if you're interested in going into social work, or if you're interested in going and being an artist, somehow musician, your starting salaries stink. <laughs> they just do, right? Down the road, you could probably end up okay, but the starting salaries are crap. The narrative that we have now is that, for example, being a teacher, there's is negative ROI. 
because that's what the data says, because the only data we have is the average price at a given institution. So we take the average price of the given institution and look at the salary that the teachers from that school are making. But what we don't know is whether that individual paid the average, paid far more, paid far less. And there's a lot of folks that want to go into teaching that could get wonderful discounts beyond the 60% average to go to a given school and get a teaching degree. And for them, the ROI would be positive. But we don't have any way of assessing that because we don't have the eye. We don't have the investment number. And that's a, that's kind of one of the reasons why I started Tuition Fit as well is we just need this number so that we can provide better answers to people. All right. We are in February now. If memory serves me correct, um, <laughs> March and April, we'll start to see these financial aid award letters roll in. You've probably seen your share of those, Mark. Uh, well, number one, I got, it's two part question here. Number one, is there ever any hope? Like just think about the size of the investment that's being made here. Is there ever any hope the same way you have to provide standardized information on credit cards, on auto loans, on you know any other major purchase? There's like, okay, you gotta tell people what they're buying and what the cost is. Is there any hope that we'll ever have standardized financial aid award letters? I don't know. I gotta be honest with you. I don't know. I, I mean, my own Senator, um, Charles Grassley, uh, Nostradamus, because I think he's older than Nostradamus now. Um, 89, I think. 89, yes. My Senator every year for a decade has been putting in the amendments for the Higher Education Act an amendment to create a one-stop shop net price calculator for all colleges and universities. And every year that thing ends up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. It, and it's and it's really too bad because it's just this, there's so many other things that I think get in the way of them actually thinking about. It. I think what happens is, I mean, they haven't renewed this thing in any reasonable way for years, right? So he's trying. And even if they do, even if they do get the financial aid offer letters to be standardized, the language to be standardized and everything else, it's, it's sort of like saying, give a bunch of people arsenic. And then after they've swallowed it, then go, oh, here's the nutritional layout of the arsenic. Just so you know, I kind of think it's late at that point, people ought to be able to know what their price would be at any given institution from the very beginning of the college search, whenever they choose to start, all the way through. They ought to be able to find that out. And that's way more than the award letter. That's just creating price transparency. And that's the goal of tuition. Budget. What are, uh, I'm going to ask you a kind of a, a listicle type question here. Five tips for reading financial aid award letters for those who might have yes, children I, I, about to go through this process or students in their classroom. One, know the top line number. The top line number, it's called cost of attendance. This is what most people will, the phrase that people use. And that is all of the tuition fees, room and board, as well as some sense of what the indirect costs are going to be right? Books, lab fees, transportation to college and back. Although some parents just 
want the transportation too. Like they're not, anyway, that's a different issue. All of those costs are the top line number. It's called cost of attendance. Find that first. Sadly, you might not be able to find it on the award letter because there's a whole bunch of them that don't put it on there. And there's a reason for that. Remember what you were talking about earlier? Let's look at the size of the scholarship and get excited about how bad they want me. So you're gonna have to find it. Now it has to be on the school's website. So you can find it on there, usually in their financial aid part of their webpage. But first of all, know the top line number. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, look at whatever aid has been offered and split out the difference between, or split out, just write out, split out the grants and scholarships that you don't have to pay back and the loans that you do. Because a lot of schools will put them all in one list and call it award, right? They'll treat them all the same. And I've seen lots of financial aid offer letters where there's like a $3,000 actual grant and a $30,000 plus loan, and it's all under awards. <laughs> so students' next step is just part split out which are grants and which are loans. And sometimes it's hard to tell, but usually you'll see the word loan or just the letter LN, letters LN, right? So split those out and then know that there's a difference. Third thing you might see is that there's work study in there for students to qualify for work study. Please know that even though that work study money is being calculated in that award letter to get that bottom line number to be even smaller, work study money is not money that's automatic. It doesn't automatically get subtracted from the uh, cost, the final cost. It's the possibility of a job for a student on campus that they have to then take the paycheck from and put it back in their bank account and then send the money to the school, but they probably already paid a bunch of their tuition, right? So it's way after the fact, okay? And sometimes the work-study jobs aren't there for the freshmen, and sometimes the work-study jobs that are there don't take them because one, you could get a better paying job off campus or it conflicts with the classes you need to graduate in four years. And that's nuts, right? So know this stuff about work study. And then I think, are we on four or five? Four? Four? Okay. So the fourth thing, going back to those grants, know what happens to those grants after the first year. Some of them are literally one-year grants. And they won't tell you that in the award letter, but they're what's called front-loading. And it's a one-year award to make your financial aid offer look better and look like they're giving you more money, but that money goes away after the first year. And so many people miss that because they don't know it, because how would they, right? And then the second thing is for the grants that do renew, find out what it takes to renew them. There are some awards that you just got to have a 3.0 GPA and stay a full-time student, and they renew every year. There's other ones that you have to have a 3.8. I don't know about everybody else, but that was a long ways from where I was at the end of my freshman year. So um, knowing all of these things are just so important. And then the last one, the kicker. Now you know the top line number. 
Now you know the number, the dollars that are actually you don't have to pay back, the dollars that you do have to pay back, the dollars that are woven into the award but really don't matter. Know that in the big print at the bottom of that award letter, where it says your out-of-pocket costs will be, and it's usually giant font, bolded, the whole thing, underlined, almost always that number will assume that you took out all the loans that were in the award letter. And maybe their parsing out-of-pocket means from a different pair of pants, but that is so misleading, but that is very common. No, I remember my niece, after I had kind of walked her through this process, saying she'd gotten an email saying she got a loan. And she said, I never requested it. And financial aid is run based on efficiencies. If we can send everybody who we think needs a loan, we'll send them the paperwork. So I wonder how many people walk in to think, because she didn't need it, because you know, she worked really hard and was able to earn enough money that she didn't need a loan. But um, I want you to talk about, because I think this is particularly pernicious, is the aid award letter always balances out, right? The cost of attendance versus the financial aid, right? They always get the numbers to zero out um, as much as possible, right? Because they're including whatever your expected family contribution. But the plug figure is often a plus loan. Yeah, you'll see that often. You'll see a plus loan in there. And the plus loan is, you know, the big stone around the neck. And sadly, it's not even the kid's neck, it's mom and dad's neck. The plus loan is a loan that the student doesn't take out, the parents take out. And the plus loan doesn't have a limit. So you can literally just borrow all the way up to the cost of attendance. And accumulate hundreds of thousands of plus loan debt. And it's not uncommon for schools to then have the, the plus loan line in the award letter embedded under that big category of awards. And there's a plus loan in there. And it might be the largest number in the entire thing. Mom and dad or mom or dad have yet to qualify for the plus loan. They have to actually go through a process of qualifying for the PLUS loan. And there's an awful lot of low-income students that have a PLUS loan in their award letter that find out in July that the parents didn't qualify for it because they did a credit check and something went, you know, whatever it is. And now that family is stuck with a couple of weeks before college is supposed to start. And they got to figure out how to come up with a bunch of money or the mom and dad feel like we fail as parents, right? So where do they go? The private loan market. And the private loan market is by far the worst place to end up. And so the plus loan, it's just so easy once your kid gets into the dream school to like, you know, we'll figure it out somehow. We need another 25,000 and a plus, I'll just, Take the plus loan. It's okay. We'll we'll figure out later. That's a huge chunk of that debt that we've got, and a huge chunk of, you know, when we started to see the total amount of student debt starting to level out a couple of years ago, at the same time the plus loan debt was jumping because the yeah, parents now were the ones. I've heard anecdotally too. Sometimes the deal is 
the parents take it out and they have an agreement with their child that they're going to help repay it, which again is borrowing from the bank of mom and dad. Um, that can't help uh, family family relations. Uh, well, for any family, look at this this way, right? Like if the if they borrow a ton of plus loan money, you're not going to retire on time. You're going to have to stay at work later, and you're not going to have money for the things that the family needs in retirement. So, as a student, if your parents do that you're going to be on the hook for their later care. So it's going to come back one way or the other. But a lot of what we've talked about today, uh, I'm looking at through a behavioral lens, mm -hmm. which is there's mythologies around schools. There's one right school for me. I mean, there's a lot of beliefs yep. that are perpetuated out there in the interests of higher education. How do you stop that? I mean, it's, I mean, you've made the point that financial aid award letter is too late because at that point, I mean, I can raise my hand when I ask, like, how many of you chose a college because you felt it was the right, I mean, you've done your research, but it felt right on your campus visit, right? Like, yeah, right. There's nothing more emotional than that versus, now I, because I knew I had to pay for it, I, my set of schools was, were schools that I could afford, but it's almost like you have to start that conversation freshman, sophomore year in high school. I think you absolutely do. And I think one of the things that that is really, it can be really helpful and it can be really helpful for parents too, because there's this tendency to be afraid to engage the conversation about money with students because the student is going to interpret it as mom and dad are taking away what they would have given me, or they're giving me limits and they're making me not be able to have what I want. And mom and dad don't want to be that for their, for their kids. So one of the things that I have found to be really helpful is take a little bit of a reframing move here and say to the student, you know, our goal for you is the same as your goal for you. And your goal for you is that in the week after you graduate from college, you've got the financial flexibility to pursue whoever it is you've become. You want to be an artist? You have the financial flexibility to, per, to chase that dream and see where it goes. Or if you want to move across country and be an entrepreneur in Seattle, awesome. Go for it. The one thing I don't want as your parent is for you to have found your passion while you're in college and then you graduate and you can't chase it because you got all this debt that we, we can't pay back, right? And you have all these payments. So reframing it that way with the student, I think helps them see that we're on the same page. Right. We both have the long term goal in mind, as opposed to dad saying, well, you can't be an artist, can't afford it. Right. So once you make that move, then you can start down the path of, all right, now we're on the same page. We're going for this together. Now, how do we think strategically about making sure that that happens? Mark, I'm going to give you the final word here for folks. Well, first of all, I also want to let people know. Mark's coming back. He's got a three-part series coming up. Uh, is it March, April, May, Mark? Uh, it's every two weeks starting March 9th. Three series, just getting behind how college prices got to where they are and how people can navigate behind the curtain and, and give better guidance to their students. Um, it's really a good, we did it last year and the response was phenomenal from financial literacy teachers, personal finance teachers. And what we found at the end of this was the people who also needed to hear all this was the school counselors. So if you teach financial literacy, 
teach personal finance, go grab your school counselor and drag them in to this thing because it will help them immensely. And quickly, Mark, what are you going to cover in those each of those three sessions? First thing we're going to just, how did college prices get to be so bananas? And what's actually going on underneath the surface? And then how is the system designed to sort of get people to fall for colleges and swoon over things and then get sucked in by price? And then third, how can students actually figure out how to find schools that fit their price range? Because you can do that. There's that's actually true. And that's, I mean, that's now what the tuition fit tool does is people can find schools by their price range, which is blowing people's heads off because it's just never been something you could do before. So you please show up in, in March. We'll see you then. Awesome. Thank you for being so generous with your time, Mark. And absolutely. Uh, some housekeeping items before we go. We'll put links to Tuition Fit as well as some of the other resources that Mark mentioned. We'll put that in the show notes, which you can find on the NGPF website at www.ngpf.org forward slash podcast. Better yet, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to also check out our Paying for College unit as well as alternatives to a four-year college because those can be incredibly helpful for the young people in your lives to help them navigate what is an incredibly important decision. I want to thank Ren McKino again for producing our podcast every week as well as the show notes. So on behalf of Mark and myself, I want to thank you again for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. Have a wonderful week.